My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we confronted the plastic crisis, featuring Malati Weissen, activist and co-founder of Bye Bye Plastic Bags, as well as Ali Manfredi, vice president of Dove. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out after today's episode. Today, we're talking about environmental racism and climate justice. Now, I feel eco-anxiety every day, but as a 22-year-old white girl from the global north, the truth is the climate change isn't my daily lived reality. Far from it. However, you may be listening to this podcast in a place where it is. You might be worrying about when the next flood will hit in Bangladesh or the drought in Zimbabwe. I'm in the UK. Despite being the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, this country is one of the most protected from climate change. By contrast, those countries and communities who have contributed the least to this crisis are already the worst impacted. Their oceans are poisoned, their backyards treated as dumpsters, and polluting factories factories continue to be built in their neighborhoods, choking the air. If you're in a bubble of privilege, yet awake to the problems, chances are you feel a sense of shame, guilt, complicity. I know I do. And if you're outside of that bubble and someone much more likely to be impacted by the climate crisis, you would be right to feel a burning sense of injustice, made worse by the fact that frontline voices are not platformed and in many cases, actively ignored. The tragic irony is that these communities who are already being directly impacted are in fact the people best placed to respond and teach us climate resilience. In this episode, we'll be hearing from some of them as we travel around the world to young people experiencing eco-anxiety. We'll hear from Caroline Hickman on how to navigate some of these feelings. And at the end of the episode, I'll be talking to Rob Cameron, formerly at Fairtrade International, the Center for Global Equality and Environmental Think Tank Sustainability. 
Melody, who recently joined Nestle, a corporation with an otherwise shady history for neglecting human rights and perpetuating social inequity. It's going to be an interesting chat. But first, I reached out to my good friend Isaias Hernandez, who you might know as at QueerBrownVegan on Instagram. Isaias is an environmental educator to his 100,000 followers and a trailblazing climate justice advocate. He has personally taught me so much. Isaias, over to you. My name is Isaias Hernandez. I am currently living in the greater New York City area. What did climate change look like for you growing up? It was often framed through the global south or looking at countries that were exploited to say like, okay, well, it's not happening here. It's happening over there. But I kind of started to make these interconnections because I community live nearby toxic facilities. We live right next to the, the Metrolink in Los Angeles. And so I started to make these notes of how there's a lot of health increase injustices in our community. A lot of people had asthma. A lot of people had a lot of other issues, especially with an immigrant community that were predominantly black and brown. And so I started to ask myself, like, why are my communities designed this way compared to the city I go to a few blocks down? Back in 2007 or 8, there was a Sayer fire here in Silmar, California, and there was ashes literally flying down in recess. I remember we still had to go to middle school and everyone was just wondering, like, why, why are we outside? Isn't there a fire? Like, aren't they going to evacuate us? During that time, I lived in affordable housing. And I remember like we clearly see the mountains of fire. And so I remember my mom saying we may have to evacuate if it gets closer to us. And so that was kind of really like a reality of like, oh, well, is the government going to help us? And she's like, no, they're not going to help you. Like it almost seemed as if it was normalized and no one really talked about it. Which are those communities that are disproportionately impacted by climate change? Predominantly, the communities that are most affected are low income, black, indigenous people of color. And generally those are composed with people who are undocumented, people who are in prison, people who are immunocompromised. And so historically, these communities have always been advocating for justice in the system, but there's a lack of resources being allocated to them. There's a lack of privilege and platforms given to these environmental justice organizations. For me, I kind of challenge people when they say, I want to protect the earth. I love the earth. But yet they don't extend themselves to learn more about sustainability or anti-racism work. They don't talk about these forces extremely rooted in capitalistic systems that kind of led us to this ecological crisis. Generally, when we think of plastic pollution, we're like, it's going directly to the oceans, right? But there are communities that live in the ocean, that live near there, or islands. And so what about their narratives? What about their experiences with that? If it's not them being affected by this plastic pollution, it's the waste incinerators that are poisoning their communities nearby in those areas because they have so much plastic that countries are like, okay, we need to get rid of the plastic. So we'll develop a waste incinerator right here because that's where all the plastic is. It's easier to source and we'll burn it. And then this then leads to a more pollution with the environment and the ones that didn't create any of this plastic pollution are the ones being burdened by it now. Why do you feel that diversity of perspective is important? When trying to build any climate technology or infrastructure for those communities, at the end of the day, we're not going to be living in those communities. It's the people from those communities. And so I think they have a right to say how it should be defined. And at the same time, although a lot of urban planners or any scientists may have all this expert of how to build and know how to do it, they often miss the component of cultural experiences and how those communities are designed and how they operate. 
right? And so having one of those people from those communities and few people representing and kind of talking the way that what's best for the community is often the best situation because at the end of the day, they know what's happening. They know what they would want to do if they had the resources invested in their communities. And so to say that scientists and like experts or urban planners know everything to fix the community often kind of disregards. And definitely, I think that when it comes to any production of a new material or system, what is often messed up years later that they found out in research is like the community was never involved. And then what happens is that they're the ones who have to bear the burden of that development project or that societal issue that is now global or in that area. So I don't think that we can solve this ecological crisis just based on purely experts. We need uh, multitudes of experts in those communities. I'd love to hear your perspective on the economic model that is driving a lot of this division and separation and what has been the historic role of big business in particular, either in driving forward these problems or in fact having a vested interest in kind of covering them up. I think that there's just an uneven distribution of power currently and the policies and practices that are in place, especially the ones that are implemented here in the United States, from my perspective, were never really designed to serve the community. It was only designed to serve certain white communities in suburban areas. A lot of businesses love to use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I think it's important to address the fact that when they framed these goals, it was through an institutional lens. It's not through a business model of like, this is how a business should operate. Yes, it's great to follow those guidelines principles. But at the same time, I think that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals does ignore a lot of dimensions of poverty and ignores a lot of the historical legacy of like colonialism, racism, slavery. And they engage this in rhetoric of like the civil society must engage with the governments to create a more equitable society, which is great. Like, I think I agree. Like, yes, communities and governments come together. But then you see that the UN knows that transnational corporations have so much power in these decisions with development projects. And then what happens is that they ignore them. The World Bank has this rhetoric of ending world poverty, but yet has this really huge controversial sustainable development projects that is underneath their name. And a really great example is they give them, I think they're called structural adjustment programs. And so like these loan programs are kind of endless cycles of debt of like, don't worry if you're in debt, we'll give you another loan, but you'll be owing us interest. And then it gets so bad for some countries that they're like, okay, don't worry, we're going to give you PRSPs, Poverty Reduction Strategy Programs. And so I think there needs to be a lot of critical discussion when it comes to institutions. Like, how do we trust these institutions knowing the fact that on paper, it looks great. I agree with everything what they're saying. I agree with everything, you know, what they're telling us, what they're telling people. But in reality, when you go into those communities, there's differences between those urban communities that live in those cities versus the indigenous rural communities. And so there's a disconnect. And so that's why I think we see so much political divide is because people from the urban cities are like, everything's great. I support the development for these projects. Meanwhile, indigenous communities don't get that platform because they're not noticed. And so this is where I feel like capitalism itself fails us is that it doesn't really always tell us the free picture. It portrays it as this really great idea, but in reality, these solutions that are technological are being given by experts in these, you know, institutions and doesn't really acknowledge a lot of the communities. Is eco-anxiety something that you've witnessed and experienced in your followers, in your community? And how would you define it? 
I think with eco-anxiety, it kind of gives this like fear of what's to come. And so you kind of have this constant feeling of like, am I doing enough? Like what's going to happen in a few years? Will there be another wildfire? And so with the rise of natural disasters happening globally, especially with storms, with the West Coast, with all the fires, like a lot of people now are generally just understanding like this is real. We can't escape from it. Our house is burned out. Our house is flooded. We lost so many people. And that is something I feel like within my community, a lot of people feel that. And so I, I think it's really great for people to identify this emotion, mainly because some people deny climate change and mental health. Some people don't support. And I don't think there's a lot of studies as much done with climate change and mental health because it's an emerging issue, but it's definitely not really being invested into. And the rise of right climate therapists are kind of in demand, but what does it mean to be a climate therapist? Like, what do you do as someone that is dedicated to be a climate therapist? Like, how does that approach look like for a lot of people, especially when you're dealing with different communities? Some may be like, you know, I just want to do more. Some others are like, I witnessed something traumatic. I need help. Like, what do I do? And so this is where I feel like eco-anxiety changes for a lot of people. And I do think that it has evolved in the last few years, especially with people using different words to describe eco-anxiety. Isaiah's alluded to this idea that more and more young people in the global north, particularly those of us historically removed from frontline climate impacts, are experiencing growing eco-anxiety. Not only because of what we're reading in the media, but because the crisis is becoming our lived experience too, whether that is flooding in Germany or the fires in my home country of Australia. I wanted to learn how others around the world are navigating their eco-anxiety, particularly in the context of global inequality. So I put a call out to some more young people. Here's what they had to say. My name is Samantha Supaya. I'm originally from Singapore and have lived in the UK, Sweden and the Philippines, which is where I am now. I cope with climate change by literally making my entire life's work about climate change. I've left my family to do so. I've left well-paying jobs to do so. And that's the most that I can do. So I'm doing it. I've always lived in the global north, i.e. the more privileged parts of the world that exist largely in rich countries. The amount of privilege and ignorance in the global north is absolutely astounding. We know that rich folk are the cause of climate change. We know that industrial capitalism is the cause of our global environmental crises. And we know that colonization and globalization accelerated industrial capitalism, profit over people. As a Singaporean who is half Indian and half Chinese, I stand in solidarity with 655 million Southeast Asians who will suffer the brunt of accelerated climate change, particularly here in the Philippines. My name is Josh Coombs, I'm 25 years old and I'm from Manchester, England. I would definitely say that climate change has affected my life and has made me deeply concerned and anxious. So when we talk about climate change, we really need to talk about climate justice. And for me, that's the relationship leading Global North countries have with the Global South. It's all well and good having international conversations about climate change and what more needs to be done. But unless 
we are acknowledging that climate change is not a future thing that we will have to deal with at some point when so many global south countries are already experiencing the damaging weather conditions and, and changes as a result of climate change. It's not an abstract thought. It's not something we can talk about in theory. I was very aware that when I stood in a group at a climate strike or in a room of people discussing sustainability and climate change, that there were a lot of white faces and voices. And that is not representative of the people who are affected by climate change or the people who need to have these conversations. I'm Yashri, I'm from Mumbai in India, and I'm 20 years old. Climate change is already here. In recent years, Mumbai has been ravaged by increasingly severe floods. And last year, we very narrowly escaped an extremely destructive cyclone. The sea level rise projections are extremely scary. It's definitely made me feel extremely powerless and fearful. I recognize that I'm highly privileged. Even within Mumbai, I see how socioeconomic disparity really influences to what extent people are affected by climate change. Even during like the monsoon season last year, when there was really severe flooding. I was able to stay home and the city barely scraped by a very severe cyclone. And I was in my home on the fourth floor. I could feel the windows rattling. I could feel the wind blowing r rain onto them, but I was still inside and I was Say if I was warm and for people living in, you know, shanty settlements in the slums in Mumbai, it was such a different experience. My name is Isabella. I'm 21 years old and I'm from Italy. And since I'm from Italy, I've actually never experienced any drastic change in climate change in my life. But when I started researching about the conditions of indigenous communities, my whole perspectives changed. I also started suffering from climate anxiety. I couldn't stop reading information and I wanted to know more. And I arrived at the point that I couldn't understand my emotions anymore. And I found myself in a mental condition that I couldn't cope with and I had really struggles uh, waking up in the morning and being happy because I couldn't stop thinking about what was happening on the other side of the world or to other people that are not privileged as I am. We've just heard from young people talk about climate injustice, recognizing their own privilege and speaking to the systematic lack of representation in the climate conversation, particularly for those communities already living through the direct impacts of the climate crisis. I want to speak to Caroline Hickman, our resident psychotherapist, about the disparities she's encountered in the emotional responses of the international young people she's worked with. As a reminder, Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath, who has spent years researching researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. She's worked with young people in the UK, in the Maldives, the South Pacific, and other communities already affected by rising sea levels. So a lot of young people in the global north will talk about feeling complicit. I've been talking with young people who have restricted the food that they're willing to let themselves eat to try and reduce their guilt and reduce their sense of complicity. Now, some of that is perfectly reasonable and perfectly acceptable in terms of taking action on the climate crisis for populations in the global north to actually think carefully about our consumption patterns. However, it can be taken to quite an extreme whereby living a relatively ordinary everyday life can be very problematic. What I think is important here is to move away from 
framing things as guilt and talking about culpability and responsibility and keeping that in perspective because we should feel some guilt but we then need to act on that guilt and that guilt needs to not be turned into a toxic guilt whereby you feel that your very existence is a problem toxic guilt is problematic i'm the worst person in the world oh let me take on the guilt of the oil companies well no please don't because actually their guilt needs to stay with them take on your own share of the guilt and then you can process and deal with your share of the guilt and turn it from toxic guilt into healthy guilt and then move towards reparation and not be ashamed for who you are. Use your privilege to support others. Don't try and get rid of it. A lot of the young people I speak with in the Global South wouldn't want young people in the Global North to give up their privilege. They just want to have equal share of what it means to live with comfort. Because you've also worked with children in places like the Maldives who are living through climate impacts today. Have you you heard that sense of injustice in them too? Yes. I think the injustice is at the centre of every conversation I have with children and young people in the Maldives, Bangladesh, Vanuatu, Nigeria. How could it not be? Teenagers in the Maldives say things to me like, we watched online that people in Iceland had a funeral for a glacier. And this is a beautiful ritual, but our whole country is going to be underwater soon. Who's going to have a funeral for us? Another one said to me, climate change is like Thanos in the Avengers Endgame, whose ideology is to kill off half the life in the universe so the other half can thrive. He says, but we're the half being killed off. People generally in the global north and in privileged communities can feel this despair and feel the anxiety, but they're not living with the imminence of their own annihilation and destruction. Not yet. Even Isaiah, when I spoke to him about his childhood and growing up, he said that his community and his family lived by these toxic facilities. Yeah, the way he asked that question, he said, why are we outside? <laughs> why isn't anybody looking after us? was heartbreaking because you've got that moment where that child, that young person realizes that they are being sacrificed. It reminds me of a famous quote by Gus Speth, a climate advisor to the US some years ago. He said that he used to think the solutions to the climate emergency were technological and we just needed 30 years of good technology to deal with them. But he's realized the problems of the climate crisis are apathy and greed and selfishness and not technology. And he says, scientists don't know how to deal with selfishness, greed and apathy. I could not agree more with reference to this not being a crisis of technology, but of selfishness, greed, and apathy. I also really resonated with what Caroline said about guilt. This idea that those of us in a bubble of relative climate privilege need to experience the guilt and be awake to the inequality of this crisis, but not allow those feelings to ferment into toxic guilt, where we experience the guilt of the corporate giants driving the crisis. So what I want to do now is speak to one of those corporate giants, Nestle. Nestle is the largest food and beverage company in the world. They're in 187 countries and own 2,000 brands, including Kit Kat, Nescafe, and Purina. They do chocolate, 
coffee, water, pet food, you name it. Now, they have publicly committed to reaching net zero emissions no later than 2050 throughout their entire value chain, aligned with the 1.5 degree Paris pathway. This includes working across the food system to invest in regenerative agriculture. However, hearing the name Nestle doesn't exactly bring to mind sustainability or social justice, does it? They have faced child slavery lawsuits, palm oil scandals in which they were caught lying about sustainability and just been named one of the world's top three plastic polluters, alongside Coca-Cola and PepsiCo for the third year in a row. Given its track record, I'm not wholly convinced by Nestle's recent climate commitments or sustainability claims. However, I don't feel like I'll change much by simply lamenting on that fact. So I reached out to someone at Nestle who made their path from sustainability in the hopes we might speak a common language. Rob Cameron was previously at Fairtrade International, the Center for Global Equality and Environmental Think Tank Sustainability. Here he is. My name is Rob Cameron. I'm the Global Head of Public Affairs at Nestle, and I work in Vevey in Switzerland. I'm reflecting on my own journey into the world of climate, and it was very much a crisis framed through polar bears and solar panels. I'd love to hear from your perspective, Rob, why is it unhelpful that we continue to frame the climate rhetoric through that environmental lens exclusively? What happens to polar bears matters. What happens to all of our ecosystems matters hugely. But the way in which climate was portrayed for very many years was that this is an environmental issue. I have got so tired of the phrase, we have to save the planet. It's not about saving the planet. The planet is going to take care of itself. And I think that what we've done is we've kind of said, oh, well, we have to do that for the environment as if we're somehow outside of the environment. We have displaced ourselves from the environment. We are part of this. And I think we've got to get more connected. Climate change is the ultimate everything issue. It's a food issue. It's a health issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a legal issue. It's an issue about economics. It's an issue about politics. Yes, climate change is also an environmental issue. But if you only come at it through the environmental lens and you miss all of those other dimensions, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we are where we are. And I think what's really exciting about where we are now is that there's a huge collision of voices coming together in ways that I could never have hoped or predicted, but it is happening. And I think it's a reason for a huge optimism. Who is disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis? I think it's been known for some time. The likeliest outcome is the people who will experience the worst effects of climate change are probably those who've had least responsibility for it in the first place. The poorer sections of communities, you're looking at people in vulnerable physical locations, people who, generally speaking, are not in the rich West, people that are in more challenged parts of the world. I think that that actually brings very much into this whole debate on climate change a kind of moral imperative that as a global community, we have to enable those that are going to be most affected to establish themselves in a way that makes them more resilient and still gives people the chance to have some control over their own lives. And this is particularly relevant now as we think about COP26 and what's going to happen there and how much support are we going to offer to emerging economies so that resilience against the worst impacts of climate and also allow 
allow for development so that people can have the kind of economic opportunities that many of us in other parts of the world have enjoyed. Do you think that we can depend on the current business leaders within these big multinationals, namely white men who are often removed from the impacts of environmental racism, social injustice and poverty to truly act with that urgency that is required and to solve the climate crisis when its very real current impacts are not their personal lived experience? No, we cannot depend upon that constituency in the way that you frame it. I don't think that's the point, though. I think we can expect it, and I think we've got every right to insist upon it. In the case of this company, this company's been around for 153 years. And I've heard it said again and again by all of the senior leadership that the company has every intention of being around for another 150 years. Well, I think there's a realisation on our leadership's part that there has been a deficit in terms of attention paid on these issues around agriculture, around climate change. I mean, Nestle is nothing if not a business that depends upon agriculture and farmers. Well, if you're going to depend upon agriculture and farmers and you've got a prospect of a food system that's exceeding planetary boundaries by about 50%, then what are we going to do? Are we going to sit here and talk about it or are we going to get on and try and do something about it? I think it's not about depending, I think it's about expectation. And how does the role of business begin to interact intersect with those other areas that you've spoken to, particularly through a social justice lens? I think we have the right to expect more from business, but I don't think we should necessarily depend upon business. Business operates within the parameters that it can operate in. Governments, if, if you like, paint the framework, and then we have to paint the picture inside the framework. So you know, always that framework is what we're operating in. And fundamentally, what we need is a reinvention of capitalism. I mean, in one sense, it's, you'd say, well, not bad, pretty good effort. But on the other hand, look at the consequences. You know, we've got a world in which which, you know, frankly, if you've got a food system that exceeds planetary boundaries to the extent that we're exceeding planetary boundaries, all of the science is showing us, you know, we simply can't go on as we are. So if we can't go on as we are, it's going to change. So what we need to do is accelerate that change, as you say. And I think what's needed is that we find ways to value the positive outcomes. You know, how do you value things above and beyond this year's profit? Well, one of the ways in which you can do that is think about what the value is going to be in the future. What's the world we want to see? And the world we want to see in 2050 is a world in which nine and a half billion people can live well within planetary boundaries. And the report that WVCSD recently put out sets out a roadmap of how to get to that happy state. And a key part of this roadmap is going to be a reinvention of capitalism. It's going to need regulatory change. It's going to need peer pressure. It's going to need leadership by business. It's going to need investors to step forward. One piece of good news I can tell you is that I have been blown away in the last year by the level of questioning that's coming from the investment community in terms of what we're doing about things like climate change. There is unquestionably a massive shift in business thinking. The rise in the importance of purpose in business has been overdue and welcome. And if it has that purpose that goes beyond the pursuit of this year's profit, then I think that you know we can do great things. Is eco-anxiety something that you have seen in the young people in your life? And can you relate to those feelings and if so, how have you reconciled those feelings and channeled them into the work that you're doing today? Eco-anxiety, I do completely understand it. I've had periods of great hopelessness myself over the course of 25 or so years been working on this stuff. Again, with anxiety though, why do we get anxious? You know, I'm anxious about something. Well, usually it's a trigger to do something about it. So I think in that sense, a degree of eco-anxiety actually is in a sense welcome because it shows some kind of awareness of the problem. And if you aren't aware of it, you're not going to do anything about it. I am driven by hope 
hope that young people today are very, very different from the cohorts that I grew up with and the connectedness of younger generations. I'm so struck by what Greta's done. I'm struck by what Extinction Rebellion has done. So something's going on and, I, and that gives me hope. My biggest fear, honestly, or one of my bigger fears, is that large cohorts of people have been into that concern and lose hope. Because if that happens, then I think there are real problems. So hope is such an important thing. But I think that you know, we need young people to campaign. We need young people to change their lives. We see that so many shifts going on on the part of young people and it comes back to expectation. I think young people expect more of each other. They expect more of us. Personally speaking, my own impact in terms of young people has been with my daughter. She's now doing an MSc in climate change. She's working for a development organization in Australia and I couldn't be prouder of that. And in fact, if anything, I rather suspect the greatest impact I'll ever have will be the outcome that she leads to as opposed to anything I personally do in my work. When the legacies are written up, when the ledger is told and my daughter turns around to me when she's about the age she is now and looks me in the eye and say, you knew about this and what were you doing? I want to give her a decent answer. I feel that Rob summed it up pretty well by saying that the climate crisis is an everything issue, including how we've become divorced from nature, our communities, and ourselves. If you only talk about the climate crisis through the lens of the environment, you miss all these other dimensions. This is why intersectional solutions, to Isaiah's point, are so important. Rob also echoed a frustration that Jack Harry's mentioned in our episode on media, which is the framing of save the planet. Climate crisis or not, the planet will be okay. Who won't be are its inhabitants. That includes us, but in particular, frontline communities, the people who have contributed least to the climate crisis, but are disproportionately suffering its impacts. To Rob's point, there is a moral imperative to protect communities on the front lines and ensure they have agency over their own lives for climate resilience. I was honestly surprised to hear Rob say we need a reinvention of capitalism. This coming from someone representing a company that profited over 13 billion US dollars last year. I wonder how much of Nestle's leadership feel the same way. Rob seems to think they're on board, at least from the view of their own preservation. But if they were, I can't help but think they'd be acting with more urgency. Perhaps individuals within the company are waking up to the crisis and their own role in it. But do they realize that embracing values beyond this year's profits means redesigning the entire engine that they're a part of? That means pushing for legislation. That means politicians not being in the pockets of corporate giants. Most importantly, that means asking a simple question. Should the purpose of a corporation like Nestle be to make profit? Or should its purpose be to create products that serve as a vehicle for solving greater social, environmental problems? To empower communities to live more enriched lives without destroying nature? This world is possible. I wouldn't be doing the work if I didn't think it was. I suppose what I've learned from Rob is that we can either feel overwhelmed by how broken this system is, or we can get in the ring and do something to fix it. Rob believes that change won't happen by shouting from the sidelines. Indeed, he left sustainability to go and sit at that boardroom table. Caroline mentioned that climate change is not a technological crisis, but one of selfishness, greed, and apathy. Most of the young people I speak to every day are 
are hyper aware of this by realizing that you're complicit in a system versus assuming the guilt of that system are two very different things. If I reflect on this myself, I realize that it doesn't serve anyone for me to stew in my own guilt or fall into doomism. But because of my privilege, because of my resources, because I have grown up in a system that benefits me over others, I do have a moral imperative to show up, to turn my eco-anxiety into action. Frontline communities don't have the choice of falling into climate doomism, because for them, doing so is life or death. So I won't make that choice. Instead, I will choose to use everything in my power to lift others up and create the world I believe is possible. Next week on the show, we will be discussing water. We have incredible conversations lined up that I am so excited about. You'll hear from Bize Gray, indigenous activist and water rights defender. You'll also hear from Oya and France of PNG, both of whom are tackling the water crisis from inside the corporate giant. And as always, you'll be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Isaias over on Queer Brown Vegan to bring you some amazing content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. The Force of Nature podcast is brought to you by Force of Nature and the awesome production team at One Fine Play. <laughs>